My name's Vicky Neal, and I'm a mathematician at the University of Oxford. Since March 2021, I've also been having treatment, on and off, for a rare form of cancer. That's been very educational. I've been learning lots about cancer and the various treatments available. While I wish it was less personally relevant to me, I also find it fascinating. I take comfort and have great pride in knowing that I have colleagues in the mathematical community whose research helps to tackle cancer, from prevention through diagnosis to treatment. In this podcast series, Maths Plus Cancer, I'm going to sit down with some of them to find out more about their research and about the people behind the research. I'd love you to join me for our conversations to learn more about how mathematics and mathematicians are helping to combat cancer. My guest today is Tom Winty, a teaching fellow in the Department of Oncology here at the University of Oxford and Director of Studies for the Oncology MSc Radiation Biology Programme. He describes himself on Twitter as a reformed particle physicist. He has a PhD in particle physics and has previously carried out research at the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. If that doesn't sound like the obvious background for a cancer researcher, well, that's something we can discuss today. Tom also has lots of experience sharing complex scientific ideas with a wider audience. Tom, welcome to the Oxford Mathematical Institute. Thanks so much for coming over from Oncology to talk to me today. Thank you, Vicky. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So we have this lovely room. We've got a wall full of books behind us. I haven't looked to see how many of them relate to maths and cancer, so we can check that out later on. Uh, this is a podcast about maths and cancer, um, and I'm guessing that you might describe yourself as a physicist or a medical physicist. I'm not sure. Are you happy if we blur any lines there might be between maths and physics for our conversation today? Well, I, I mean, the thing is, Vicky, I, I'm not sure I'd like to be pigeonholed like that. You know, I mean, I mean, it's such a broad interdisciplinary topic um no but um yeah so as you say i i'm a uh, particle physicist originally by by training um and the the idea at first was you know look at the very fundamental particles the very building blocks of matter that that, that make up everything and so um yeah i spent uh two years out at the large hadron collider the lhc uh, out in um switzerland uh so although i'm so i am on the author list for the paper for the Higgs boson discovery, um, which was 2012, 10 years ago, instantly dating the podcast. Sorry. Um, but um, yeah, it was a while, but, but I was actually looking for dark matter. Um, wow. So this missing 20 odd percent of the universe, which um, yeah, we were hoping by smashing the protons together, energy into mass, all that sort of thing, would create these um, yeah dark matter candidates, um, version of uh, supersymmetry um, for the, the experts out there. Um, yeah, we didn't find it. <laughs> we, I we, guess that's we the nature of scientific that, research, that is the, isn't the, it? That, that, that's the thing. But the um, the important thing is, uh, we still haven't found it. Um, so, you know, there's no embarrassing epilogue to write for the thesis or anything like, oh, yeah, we just weren't looking hard enough. Um, but uh, but no, we did have one of the first papers out sort of saying, oh, oh, oh it's not there. Um, but uh, yes, uh, 10 years later, um, still, still nothing. Um, so in terms of that journey into... Uh, yeah, medical physics and sort of uh, cancer research. Yes, I'm afraid it was quite the, the stereotypical thing of, um, I suppose I probably should do something useful now. You know what I mean? Um, so... Uh, and what was it that drew you to oncology? Excellent question. Uh, in that it was quite a, a, as with most things in science, kind of a, a serendipitous thing. So, so initially, um, I... Uh, Obviously, with particle physics, you're dealing with billions and billions of collisions a uh, second, uh, scanning through the events to look for, for so you different have epic things. Epic amounts of data. Epic amounts of data. That's the official technical term. By the okay. Way. Epic, okay. Epic I'm glad amounts. I got that uh, right. Yeah. Um, you know, so, I mean, literally, petabytes of stuff coming out sort of every, every year that you'd have to store and process and all that sort of thing, which obviously leads into the realms of big data, um, which uh, I'm sure you'll be discussing or, or have discussed on another episode. Um, but in terms of that concept of, of having masses of data to, to scan through, pull through the computing facilities that you need to do that. Um, so I had some experience uh, in that. Also, a postdoc came up uh, looking at big data applied to medical imaging. Uh-huh. And so that was at UCL. Um, and uh, so we had tens of thousands of uh, brain scans, MRI scans. Um, so this is no longer data about particles colliding. This is now about data coming out of patients' brain scans. Exactly. And... Uh, yeah, so MRI scans, uh, magnetic resonance imaging. Um, so the particular pathology I was looking at was the atrophy associated with Alzheimer's disease, i.e. where the grey matter areas in the brain sort of shrink, and we were looking for automated ways of doing that. 
um, by sort of applying big data techniques to uh, the MRI scans of the brain. Um, but uh, yeah, that then led to a, another postdoc um, actually here in Oxford uh, at uh, FIMRIB, the uh, Centre for Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging of the Brain. That's over at the John Radcliffe Hospital. Um, so there we were looking at the UK Biobank data set. Now there they've got um, a sort of systematic imaging programme for uh, I think people aged from between 40 and sort of 60, 80 odd, um, sort of the aging population basically. Um, and it's a prospective study that basically you image everybody now, see what pathologies develop, what sort of illnesses they sort of get, and then look back in their data sets to see if there are any kind of clues that would lead you to go, ah, oh, well. So, so this is it? patients who agree to be involved in a research project. Uh, volunteers, they're, yeah, not yeah, even yeah, patients. Yeah. They're, okay, they're not patients yet because yeah, there's exactly, nothing wrong. Yeah. They're just agreeing to take part in this research yeah, project. And so mm-hmm. they give permission for their medical records to be kind of analysed and anything flagged up. Uh, and again, um, so at the time, the sort of 10, 20,000 odd uh, imaging data sets. And again, it's all done. Um, well, this is the, the newer imaging data sets that we were looking at. Um, but I guess since then, they have to, again, sort of tens of thousands every year sort of continually being added and analysed in that sense. And there I was yeah, involved in the analysis of that. Um, and uh, again, looking at sort of big data techniques to, to look at different sort of... Um, that was focusing on the structure of the brain again, sort of. So again, grey matter, white matter measurements, uh, automated ways of doing that. Because obviously you don't want to be scanning through 10,000 It's just not practical <laughs> for a person to it, sit it, through exactly. and look at so, and analyse all of these scans. Exactly. So in a clinical setting, obviously, you have a radiologist looking at um, every scan. And to be fair, they, they do do that with the biobank scans as well for sort of any sort of uh, incidental findings. Um, but, uh, yeah, obviously, ideally, you have, uh, again, massive sort of computing nodes scanning for all these things, looking for um, potential signatures of interest. But this thing came up with... Um, something called magnetic resonance-guided radiotherapy. Um, Radiotherapy is a treatment for cancer where you apply ionising radiation in an attempt to kill the tumour cells while sparing the healthy normal tissue around it. Um, Magnetic resonance imaging is obviously where you're looking at inside of the body using a non-invasive, non-ionising This is uh, one of these quite common scanning techniques that people might have for cancer, but also for all sorts of other kind of things. Exactly, yes, yeah, yeah. Doctors need to look inside the body. That's one way of doing it. Exactly. Uh, so magnetic resonance guided radiotherapy is this concept, which I hadn't heard of before, where um, you combine an MRI scanner with a radiotherapy machine and use the MRI scanner to look at what you're targeting. So that you're really trying to make sure that that radiotherapy is damaging the bad cancer cells and sparing the healthy cells. Exactly. So, um, so in many areas of the body, um, you don't actually need it because there's not much motion. So um, if uh, the prostate, for example, um, you know, you pretty much know where that is. You can do various sort of compression techniques to, to stop motion. Um, but for the um, stomach, for example, um, the gastrointestinal tract, if you will, uh, upper GI, we call it, um, there can be a lot of motion. There's three involuntary sort of peristalsis, uh, where your bowels move about. So have... during the few minutes that a patient's on the radiotherapy machine, there might be motion going on that would affect the radiotherapy. Exactly. And particularly somewhere like the uh, stomach or uh, pancreatic cancer is the, the classic one because, of course, the pancreas is very close to the uh, duodenum, small intestine. Um, yeah, there if you... If something moves and you hit the wrong bit, um, you're in trouble because you'll have um, secondary toxicities to the duodenum can be, have terrible effects, which is why, in general, with pancreatic cancer, uh, radiotherapy isn't used because um, the prognosis for uh, pancreatic cancer isn't great. Order of sort of months. The last thing you want is to go through radiotherapy and all the um, toxicities and side effects associated with that. But with MR guided radiotherapy, um, the plan is you can avoid that. And the the studies that have been done so far indicate yes, that is a, a, a promising thing. And it, it's kind of a kind of a no-brainer when you think about it in terms of if you can image the body live as you're delivering the radiotherapy treatment um and this is the amazing thing. one of the, some of these machines they actually just turn the beam off when so there's live target tracking of of the pancreas for example so this isn't the the, the human who's running the radiotherapy machine who's doing it the machine is taking care of it automatically and could potentially adjust uh, exactly yeah so obviously you have a um radiotherapy specialist monitoring that but yes yeah an automated system that will beam off beam on so I, th- I think I understand what this um, magnetic resonance guided radiotherapy is. Where do you come into it? Well, so um, as a particle physicist, we um, 
use very large magnetic fields uh, intentionally in our detectors. Um, so the compact muon solenoid, which is the, the CMS experiment I, I worked on, had a um, 3.8 tesla magnet, solenoidal magnet at the center, um, which is about 400,000 times the Earth's magnetic field. Wow. Um, pretty big. You, you, you don't want to stand next to it with your car keys in your pocket. Very powerful stuff. So I was like, this is amazing. And, and what happens there when protons smash together, charged particles come out. As you know, particles, charged particles, um, when they're in a magnetic field, uh, experience the Lorentz force and sort of curve around in, in little tracks. And from those curly tracks, the curvature of the tracks, you can work out the momenta that they have. And then with the energy deposit, you can then um, just use Einstein's uh, equation to, to work out what the um, mass of the particle was. And that's you make a, it sound so easy. It, 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 yeah, it was. But I mean, that's all we were doing, though. It's just sipping coffee in save a... <laughs> Run the thing, set up your spreadsheet, and off you go. But you've got this massive magnet, so you're an expert at kind of understanding ionized particles in the presence of a large magnet. Well, this is the thing. So in radiotherapy, um, obviously it depends on the type of radiotherapy. So radiotherapy machines either deliver the radiation via uh, photons, so um, either KV or MEV uh, photons, basically it's a very sort of high energy things. Um, you can get uh, proton therapy as well, which is a... Um, there are very different thing because uh, protons are a lot more difficult to um, produce and accelerate. And this is this kind of new specialized this is a very new, sometimes yeah. hear about the new proton beam therapy but that's not the kind of ordinary type of No yeah so your standard radiotherapy machine will use uh, high energy photons um, but of course to produce those photons you um, smash electrons from a linear accelerator into a tungsten target uh, and from that radiation that's what uh, goes into the radiotherapy but the point is you have charged particles like electrons being used to produce that radiation now if you've got a magnetic resonance imaging scanner there they also use very high power magnets i hadn't quite appreciated this so when i was like oh the cms experiment oh yeah 3.8 tesla pop down the john radcliffe you know they've got um like three tesla scanners sort of every other it was like, oh oh okay we're not so special. Oh, and obviously they're not as big. Um, so the diameter of the CMS experiment was about one and a half. It's a very I niche think. competitive magnet. Very, yeah, yeah, basically, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, but your typical bore of a, the, the hole that you go into with an MRI scanner is about sort of um, fifty centimeters, eighty centimeters. Um, but all of a sudden, you're looking at a project and thinking, "I know loads about high power magnets. I know loads about charged particles. Maybe I could be useful here." It was. I can believe it. it was like this. Surely this is the perfect combination of particle physics and MRI imaging together at last. Um, so yeah, so the the actual research that we were involved in um, was um, imaging uh, in the context of, of radiotherapy. So you'd use the imaging uh, to obviously not only monitor the position of the tumors in real time, but also do your radiotherapy plan. So you'd image on the MRI scanner, compare that with the CT scan, the computer tomography, which is a more traditional scan using X-rays. Um, we'll get into that probably later. Um, and that's what you use to create a treatment plan. And um, so, yeah, so we, because I could go between the MRI and the particle physics of the, of the radiotherapy, it's like, oh, this, is, this is amazing. So we were um, setting up the uh, clinical trial to, uh, yeah, look at the effectiveness of, of this technique for pancreatic cancer. I believe that trial's just um, just starting now, actually. Um, but uh, yes, I'm not working on that uh, anymore at the moment, but I still sort of dabble. Um, it's, uh, it's more teaching these days, but... Um, but yeah, that's how, how I got there, basically. Yeah, and I guess it it's interesting. I, w- I was trying to sort of think about, oh, what might Tom be interested in as a, as a physicist working in this area? And I was guessing medical imaging and I was guessing radiotherapy. But actually, it sounds as though you're really interested in where those two come together, which is kind of uh, particularly interesting, I guess, that sort of brings together those uh, transferable skills from your particle physics background. If you mean, are we finally doing something useful with, with particle physics? Uh Yes. Uh, no, I, I, that's, that's, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm a big fan of fundamental particle physics too. Um, well, it, but it's lovely that from your point of view that those kind of intellectual interests came together in a way and then you're actually seeing the impact on that potentially for patients. I this, guess that's the, a really different experience. This is the thing. So, I mean, you know, I used to give a lot of um, schools talks, uh, you know, where you talk about particle physics and the question, you know, well, actually it was more the general public ones. Um, you know, you get people, yeah, but, you know, why are you spending five billion pounds on the large hydrochloric sort of thing and you go well one because it's quite nice to find out you know the answers to these questions but you can genuinely say um the spin-off technologies from these machines so for example the superconducting magnets that are used to 
um, bend the path of the 7TV protons as they go around the 27-kilometer ring in, in Geneva. That magnet technology, in terms of the superconducting magnets that you need, yeah, will be applied to the very MRI scanner superconducting magnets that um, are used to image patients regularly in every day, well, millions of patients around the world sort of every year. Um, so, Fantastic. Yeah, yeah and I, I am by background a pure mathematician. I am interested in mathematical questions for their own sake. I am uh, interested in scientific questions for their own sake. But it's also really interesting seeing these potentially unexpected applications of them where if you have that fundamental understanding of what's going on mathematically, scientifically, you can then use that understanding in all sorts of interesting ways. So let's talk some more about the maths. I know you said that the maths was not your favourite thing, but let's talk some more about the maths. Um, so I, I have radiotherapy as part of my treatment. Um, I was I was a patient. I had to lie extremely still. Uh, the um, team looking after me positioned me in just the right place on the table. They positioned the table in just the right place. And then this sort of rotating arm would come round with a kind of head on that stuff came out of that I couldn't see, of course, because um, these, these are particles that I can't see. Um, so you just lie there and trust that something is happening. You can't detect any evidence of it as a patient. It doesn't hurt. You can't feel anything. Um, but once I'd done this a couple of times and I kind of learned the drill of what happened, basically my job was just to lie extremely still for a, a short number of minutes while this happened. And, and after the first couple, that's not so exciting because it's just the same thing every time for however many times you're there having radiotherapy. So then I start to think about, well, what's going on here? And there's a, a sort of um, circular disc over me that's kind of being angled to direct the beam to the right place. And as you mentioned earlier, the um, as I understand it, this works by the particles damaging um, well, damaging cells and you want them to damage the, the cancer cells and not damage too many of the, the healthy cells because that's when you start having side effects and kind of implications and so on for the patient. So there's a sort of complicated things going on in this head. I could see bits moving to kind of direct and shape the beam and I'm going, oh, well, that's really interesting. How do they do the, the geometry? I know they've done the scans. They've got this image of they know exactly which bit of me they want to target, but someone somewhere must have figured out how they angle that beam to try to maximize maximize hitting um, the area that they want to hit and to minimize hitting any kind of healthy tissue around it. Is that being done by a human? Are they doing some complicated geometry? Is there some amazing software that has it? I'm going, what's, what's the maths of this? So is that something that you can talk about a little bit? I can talk about it a little bit. Um, hopefully, yes. I'm not asking you to do the calculations so I, I won't, for me. Yeah, <laughs> I, I won't be producing a radiotherapy plant at the moment. But um, but no, it is a, um, yeah, a fascinating process. And you're absolutely right to be thinking, you know, how do they do it because because yeah what you're you're talking about is um you know the very first rule of uh large hadron collider club is don't stick your hand in the beam because high, you know high energy radiation is is is, is very damaging it, it, and that that's the whole point of radiotherapy is yeah. that it's damaging you just want to be careful how you do it exactly and and, and this is the so like i say i teach on the um msc in radiation biology and um the fundamental thing about the course is that it really is this fusion between uh, the physics and the biology uh, in terms of just being so interdisciplinary you need to understand both to understand what's what's going on and the thing with radiation ionizing radiation in particular is that really the cliche is that it's this double-edged blade in the sense that what ionizing radiation fundamentally does in the context of radiotherapy or, or indeed um, cancer in general is it causes dna damage so that's the main sort of Thing that you're talking about when you're, you're talking about um, ionizing radiation, both in terms of safety, but also treatment of uh, cancer. So is, is, is that the same kind of issue that um, means that if you um, are exposed to the sun too much that you can get um, potentially get skin cancer? Is that the same kind of principle of ionizing radiation causing DNA damage? Exactly. Yes, I think so. Um, I'm less of an expert on the, the, the skin cancer example, but, um, but certainly yeah, in, in general, um, any point where you have something like a high energy photon um, or indeed uh, alpha radiation, um, little helium nuclei from you know, you can smoke detectors and uh, radon gas. Um, you know, if you live down in Cornwall, you have to have radon sensors to um, look out for radon gas coming out of things because that releases alpha radiation. Um, but yeah, any kind of thing that is, can be thought of in terms of DNA damage. I mean, DNA is incredible in the sense of it encodes all of this information about how to build a human being, how to build a hamster, all that sort of thing in these combination of, of the base pairs, adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine. This is all held together in a 
incredibly delicate sort of framework. Um, Watson and Crick sort of discovered it, obviously based on Rosalind Franklin's data that she got at King's the College. Double helix. The famous double helix structure. Um, and what's fascinating is all of that information is encoded and tells you how to uh, yeah, build a human cell. So the human cell, I think, has about 9 billion of these base pairs. It's amazing when you look at how the body or how even a cell replicates the DNA. Mistakes happen. But the again, there are these proteins that correct these mistakes as things uh, go along. Um, like a proofreader fixing the Like spikers. a proofreader. But the, the fascinating thing is that there are these self-repair error-checking mechanisms that all exist within the cell that are all going all the time uh, in, in our body in every cell, um, which is um, just amazing when you think about it. Now, radiation enters the picture. That's where you've got a problem. Um, when you think about it, the DNA bases are just molecules made up of atoms um, that all have their own little atomic bonds and things together and what have you. And uh, by definition, ionizing radiation is stuff that knocks electrons out or knocks different bits out of those things. So you're, you're smashing up this very delicate, complex, encoded structure, which, generally speaking, is not a problem. Um, because, like I say, these error-correcting mechanisms exist that will correct, and, and that is how you know we've got here. <laughs> if that system hadn't developed to make sure that we could survive that kind of radiation damage, um, you know, we'd be in trouble. And I think there are even some theories that say that it was that sort of radiation damage that causes you know, mutations that lead to evolution and things. There are various theories. Some are crazier than others. Some are written by people in greening, you know, that sort of thing. But anyway, the point is, <laughs> radiation in that sense uh, can be bad. Now, with cancer, as I understand it, the issue is not so much the radiation damaging DNA in the first instance, because there are these self-repair mechanisms. It's where you actually damage the bits that do the repair. Um, and there, or um, there are certain sort of things, I think, in the cell cycle that sort of are checkpoints that um, the cell will reach a sort of checkpoint and go, right, am I going to reproduce now? Or am I going to stay as I am? Or am I going, to, is this the end for me? Is it time, time to go? And from what I understand, some cancers, not all, I, I mean, cancer is a phenomenally complex subject, because I'm sure you're aware. Um, but sometimes, for example, um, yeah, radiation will damage one of these bits that says, right, we, sh we shouldn't reproduce anymore. And that's where you can end up with uncontrolled growth exactly. and a tumour growing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in that sense, from the how does cancer start side, that's where radiation uh, can be bad. In terms of radiotherapy and, and treatment, what you're hoping is, because the cancer cell and the, the DNA has been affected in these uncontrolled ways and a lot of the mechanisms are, are broken, what you're trying to do is induce so much damage um, with additional radiation that then the cell just goes, oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm out. Um, and the tumour stops reproducing, and uh, well, the tumour cells stop reproducing. And then, yes, hopefully the tumour uh, goes away and cell death occurs as not as normal, but the cells just die. And the, uh, amount of, the amount of radiation in radiotherapy is much, much more than we would ever stumble across in our daily lives to achieve that effect. Absolutely, yes, yes, yes. Um, Phenomenally more, yeah, um, so many orders of magnitude. Um, so, uh, yeah, so while you're sitting there and thinking, oh, nothing's happening, uh, or, or you can't see anything, yeah, there, there, there will be something. But, of course, the way that they uh, calibrate these machines and make sure and there are various things called quality assurance plans that, um, that make sure, and they'll rerun the treatment, essentially, that you've had with detectors in place to make sure, right, well, we did that. That was exactly what we saw here, so we're very confident that that was the dose uh, received. But the idea, so you mentioned that you um, went back to several sessions of radiotherapy. It's not just one thing where, where you go back. Um, and the idea there is, um, again, it, it goes back to mathematics in a way, um, in terms of cell survival and, and regeneration. The idea is that normal healthy tissue, because most of the, um, well, hopefully all the cell repair mechanisms, DNA repair mechanisms in normal tissue, um, will be working just as expected. So you break up that prescribed growth into multiple fractions. And the idea is that the normal tissue recovers and does that repair before the next lot. And then, but the, the tumor cell just can't. And, and in terms of that frequency, I think it's common. I, I Certainly I was having mine daily Monday to Friday over a period of weeks. So there's sort of 23 hours and 45 minutes or something for the cells to kind of recover in between, for the healthy cells to do their best to recover in between times. Exactly, but it also... 
not bizarrely because when you stop and think about it it's 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 kind of all the cells in that cell cycle will be at different stages at the very instant that you get that radiotherapy so if you hit the cell at a certain point in the cell cycle you'll have more effect than you will at another time that's really interesting i tend to think of cells as a static thing but they're not there's this kind of cycle of processes yeah and this is why i have infinite respect for biologists because when you start to think about the complexity of what's actually going on inside your body i mean think with particle physics fundamentally you've got two things colliding together actually two body problem easy mass is fine <laughs> conservation momentum easy peasy 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 biology you have all these systems molecule atoms interacting and yeah as you say this, this stuff is going on uh, but if you stop and think about it too much i mean and and elsewhere in the podcast we're talking about the role of mathematical modeling in biology and how you can take those immensely complex systems and try to abstract out the kind of key essence of them to try to make sense of them because they are so mind-blowingly complicated with all of those details in um yeah and, and of course that you know the stereotypical cliche thing you do as a physicist is like well can i at least if I can't model it as a point, maybe a sphere. So like, you know, but a cell is just like a sphere, basically. A sphere of water, maybe. Um, but then, yeah, biologists will get very cross with you. Um, and, and rightly so. Uh, you know, it's, it's very complicated. So I think we've got to the kind of idea of radiotherapy and this idea of using um, very high energy radiation that will... Um, damage the cancer cells beyond repair but you structure the treatment in such a way that you give the healthy cells the best chance of recovering but you also try to direct the beam carefully and I'm going to pick up on this again because I'm really genuinely interested having sat on this machine lay, lay on this machine for a long time thinking you know, how how do they get the geometry to try to work out to hit exactly the stuff they want to hit and not too much of the rest is this feeding in some parameters to a piece of software that does some interesting calculations based on previous work or are the radiotherapy team sitting there doing that on a kind of bespoke basis for each individual patient or how does it work? Excellent question. Thank you for bringing uh, us back to the, the point. I, I kind of went off on, a, on, the, on the physics there. But, um, but yeah, so I imagine um, the first thing you will have uh, done as part of your treatment is have a CT scan, a computer tomography scan uh, based on x-rays which will produce a three-dimensional image of inside uh, your body. Now, CT scans, in contrast to MRI scans, um, do feature ionizing radiation. The X-rays that are used in that are um, ionizing. They will do, in principle, the, the lower energy, obviously, than the... Yeah, so the amount of radiation you get from a CT scan is tiny, non-trivial, but tiny. Uh, yes, but it, it is absolutely something that is uh, considered in terms of patient safety, um, and the uh, yeah the guiding principles ALARP I think as low as reasonably possible in terms of the amount of radiation that you uh, receive. The benefit to the patient of having the scan is outweighs the kind of potential risks of having it. Uh, exactly yes. Um, whereas MRI is completely non-ionizing, um, and so uh, you know there's no risk to the the patient like that unless you've got like a metallic implant or a claustrophobic, and they do take longer. But with um, yeah, so you start off with the CT scan which provides the map of the body. And from that, uh, and possibly in combination with other imaging, they will know where the tumour is, where the target site. It can be called either the, well, the gross tumour volume, the GTV is the sort of big bit they're aiming for. Um, the PTV, the planning target volume, is the bit where they'll aim to deliver the radiation uh, uniformly, as much dose as possible uh, to the tumour. Now, within that, you have the constraints of the organs at risk, the OARs. Uh, as we call them. And yeah, they're the bits that you don't want to hit. Um, so there are particular parts which are more sensitive than others. For example, the um, yeah, the colon or anywhere where you have lots of cells reproducing. Basically anywhere, yeah, sort of bowel-like or intestinal, you, you want to avoid. Um, obviously lungs, uh, heart, all the key vital organs basically. Um, yeah, don't, don't hit those. Um, so what you'll do typically is a um, the radiotherapist will and or radiographer, depending on who it is, will basically trace out the bits that you want to either hit or not hit. Um, it's called contouring. You're describing just drawing with your finger. You're sort of drawing a squiggly outline that captures precisely that region. Basically, yeah. So there'll be a screen um, and, yeah, using a mouse or a scribe or something like that. Because it's not always clear from a CT scan or MRI scan exactly where the boundaries are. Yeah, and sometimes I guess the, the radiotherapy is trying to hit an actual tumour and sometimes it's more of a precaution where the tumour has been removed and you're just trying to make sure that there aren't cancer cells remaining. Exactly. And there is a 
entire subject discipline focused around auto contouring, as they call it. So using big data, deep learning, image processing techniques to automatically identify organs, tumors, and what have you. And they'll do that for each slice of the CT scan because it's although it's a 3D image, it's essentially made up of each kind of slice of uh, 2D images, basically. And that will create, um, yeah, these regions that you want to hit and you want to avoid. And then, yes, uh, in a nutshell, there is a very nice bit of software that will perform the optimization problem. Um, and actually, the mathematics of that is fascinating. Well beyond my expertise, I'm afraid. But it's but it sounds like that just the kind of thing that matters is really good for optimization problems. I want to hit as much of this while hitting as little of that as possible. Those kind of problems are areas where mathematicians have lots of expertise. So it yeah, sounds like the kind of place where I can see maths is relevant. There are terms like uh, it's a convex problem, could that be, or concave problem in terms of an optimization. It's like, which, which way does the curve go? But there are obviously, you know, practical constraints like, we can only run this many beams uh, for this amount of time at this sort of angle. Um, so the, the, right, yeah. What 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 can the machine actually do? Not yeah. just what is mathematically theoretical. Well, exactly. Yeah, so you can imagine, you know, the, the mathematics is going. Oh yeah, yeah. So if you had ten million beams all here at this angle, you know, obviously that's not uh, you're within the constraints of what the machine can do. But again, there's a whole industry, um, and that's actually, I think it's fair to say, done more in the commercial sector in terms of yeah, not only producing the best results, but also in an optimum time because you've got to run these optimization problems you know in a on a computer somewhere in a hospital um yeah it's no, it's, it's no good if your mathematical process is going to take three years because actually the patient needs the treatment and again mathematicians with optimization numerical analysis techniques are, are really good at those kind of questions exactly and yeah and those constraints will be set by you know medically agreed limits on what the organs at risk uh, can take as a dose and they'll be your main constraints but also at the same time you don't want to maximise that dose that you are delivering uh, to the tumour. And going back to the MR-guided thing, um, you also have to account for uncertainties. So for things like uh, motion, um, so respiratory motion is the um, big one because obviously you have to breathe. So you're, 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 you're trying to avoid the lungs, but actually the lungs are moving a bit while the patient's lying there. Exactly. So there are things you can do like place sensors on uh, the chest to kind of trace respiratory motion and um, only deliver the beam at certain points when you're at that right point of the respiratory cycle. Uh, so you know the beam is, is going in the right place. But you can also just make those margins, those sort of boundaries a bit bigger um, and the doses a little lower just to be on the safe side. I think this is such a fascinating area of bringing together the the biologists and the clinicians and the physics and the maths. And this doesn't work unless you have all of those ingredients coming together, I guess. Uh, exactly. Um, yeah, it, it's, again, one of those... Um, examples of bringing in you know a seemingly abstract optimization problem uh, into a clinically relevant field i'm just going to interrupt briefly to let you know that if you're enjoying this episode of maths plus cancer then please do head to ox.ac.uk forward slash cancer to find the other episodes in the series in which my amazing guests tell us about some of the many intriguing ways in which maths and stats are helping us to understand and tackle cancer. When you're developing these radiotherapy plans, um, what you need to know, as well as you know, where are you pointing the beam, is how far is the beam going to penetrate uh, the body in order to reach the target. Um, so that's the other nice thing about CT scans. Because it's the same type of radiation, um, less, uh, lower energy, but still fundamentally photons, you've already got that information. Um, about the uh, what's called the electron density of, the, of all the tissue uh, in there. So you can so you, see how much it's being absorbed and how much it keeps passing through. Exactly. So you can feed that into your optimization problem to work out how far the beams need to go or how far they will go, depending on where you're angling them, um, things like that. Of course, with MRI scans, you don't have that information. So in terms of doing the radiotherapy planning, at the moment, you still have to have a CT scan. So there's this very cool thing in deep learning called transform learning. So just to give a sort of concrete example, suppose you've got the human body imaged with a CT scan and you train up a deep learning model uh, to do sort of analysis and general stuff based on the data from the CT scans. Um, in transform learning, what you do is you take what that model has learned for, about how CT scans are done and literally transform those lessons about it 
to uh, scans that you might have taken another way, for example, with MRI scans. So the idea is that all the stuff you worked out or with the CT can be applied to the MRI scans. So, for example, you could then produce a sort of what's called a pseudo uh, MRI scan from that CT data of the object uh, and vice versa. And actually, that's the way around you, you do it because you want to create the pseudo CT scan, i.e. one that involves ionizing radiation from the non-ionizing one, i.e. the MRI scan. But that, of course, started out in a completely different field uh, in, in deep learning. You know, you know, the very first sort of image analysis and identification stuff going back to AlexNet, you know, back in 2012, um, where all these things, well, it was basically mainly about identifying things on the internet and, you know, doing sort of object searches like that. But again, it's finding all these applications um, in... Uh, and yeah. there's loads, loads and loads of maths in all of this deep learning, machine learning, all of these kind of things. Exactly. Although the thing I didn't realise about that was... These, these kind of algorithms and techniques had been around um, for quite a while um, in terms of neural nets and you know, all these things that, that feed about. But it was only in sort of 2010, 2012-ish, um, so again, about the time of the, the Higgs boson was discovered, um, that it really kicked off. It was GPUs, graphical processing units, um, really became available and cheap enough to sort of run these massively parallel calculations that you need to make neural nets work. Um, so you can thank the gaming industry for all the deep learning stuff, which is then likewise fed into the medical and all this sort of thing. It's just how it all sort of relates together. It, it's a, yeah, I think that's the main thing about medical physics uh, for me is that it does bring in all of these kind of topics together into a, um, ultimately, yeah, hopefully treating patients and, and making people better. So how much of your work now is kind of directly with clinicians and directly having an impact on patients? Because that feels like, a really different experience from being a particle physicist working at CERN or something. How, how is that? Um, so I'm very much involved on the, the research side. I don't have much um, contact with patients. The timeline between, you know, doing the research, the fundamental stuff in the lab and the, you know, actually bringing that uh, treatment to patients um, can be quite long. Um, and obviously a massively important part of that is the clinical trials part in terms of you know bringing an experimental technique or treatment or intervention um to uh patients and checking that it's safe and checking that it does what you think it's going to do and all of that kind of thing. exactly so um yeah i have again a phenomenal amount of respect for not just the uh clinicians and clinical trials teams who run these things because um rightly so there is a huge amount of paperwork because you've got to make sure everyone's safe, all the procedures are being followed correctly. Um, so that's a you know a hugely important part of uh, that process. And, and Oxford has our, our clinical trials unit, which 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 does all that, and they just great way. But also the patients themselves, um, you know, who agree to to take part in these trials because you know it can be quite a intimidating thing to you know is this going to work? Or at the same time, it could be a very ex exciting thing. But um, you know, without them we wouldn't be able to make this process and, and ultimately bring these things in, into the clinic. Um, but, um, but it's interesting, um, you know, teaching on the, the master's courses, you know, when you, uh, different students will have different, uh, you know, ambitions and thoughts about what they want to do. Um, but it's fascinating. Some of them really just hone in on the research and, oh, I just want to do the, the, the maths even. But some people really want that sort of interaction with patients and seeing the impact that the, the treatment is having um so um you know just to plug the course uh, we, we offer the whole thing and, and, and i wanted to ask you about your teaching because you and i have this shared interest in teaching my students are, are maths undergraduates or sometimes they're um school and college students who are particularly interested in maths who are your students who are you teaching what what is their background when they come to your mse course well again that's one of the great things about the course and why I find it so fascinating, um, the range is incredible. Um, so from the very sort of, um, so this year we've got someone who's d doing astrophysics and so we want to you know, apply it to that um, sort of treating cancer, that kind of radiation therapy sort of thing, um, to uh, biomedical engineers. Um, we've got some uh, people who are already in the clinic who are sort of doing this as a sort of um, more theoretical thing to possibly lead into a, a PhD or further sort of research study. Because um, that's the other great thing that, um, particularly in Oxford as well, I've come across some amazing clinicians who, you know, not only just saving people's lives, applying this sort of treatment thing, but then they're like, oh, I fancy doing a uh, DPhil now. I'll just do a PhD in my spare time. And they, they will, and they'll sort of do all this stuff. But because they've got that clinical background, um, it's 
much more not easier but just just there are already sort of the links there to to work with patients to obtain data to feed into the research so that's a, that's a very sort of common uh, pathway as well um, all the way through to the um biologists who who again uh maybe have more an interest of the molecular biology on, on the dna side but want to get that greater grounding of well, how does the physics work how does this dna damage occur what can we do to stop it or optimize it it sounds like a, a fascinatingly diverse cohort with um biologists and people whose background means that they know lots about the biology but maybe they have to learn a bit more of the physics right through to the other end of whatever this spectrum might be with people who know loads about the physics but maybe have to learn some biology pretty quickly is that a kind of fair summary exactly yes yes and um yeah one of the things we, we really try to emphasize is, is yeah working together because i mean you know Science is ultimately a team sport, and and this, this is almost the problem with you know undergrad. You're always doing something very much on your own. Something we really try to emphasise is yeah, you've got to work with other people, other people in your lab, other people who know you know different areas that um, you might not be so familiar with. Um, but uh, yeah, they do a kind of research dissertation project as well as part of the, the studies and the. Um, I mean, they're all they're all great, but the ones I enjoy the most is where you've got like a physicist who has come in and gone, right, no, I'm going to get to grips with the biology. And they'll be there, you know, with Petri dishes and pipettes and, and going things, but then sticking it in the irradiator and seeing what the hell the cells do when they're, they're zapped and, and what have you. And it's, it's like, yeah, that's kind of, for me, that, that that's one of the most satisfying things in the course. It's just bringing the physics and the biology together to ultimately, yeah, hopefully improve patient outcomes and make, make people better. And, and thinking about your own personal story, you studied physics as an undergraduate did you do any kind of um applications of physics to biology in that did you have the option to do that but you chose a different path or were you not aware that physics had these kind of potential applications to medicine uh that's a good question particle physics was all about how does nature work at the sort of fundamental level how do we you know the massive questions the massive questions with the higgs bosons literally the massive question so um but yeah, I heard about the Higgs boson, this this last piece of the um, standard model of particle physics that explains how we think everything works. And I was like, yeah, I'd quite like to work on that. What do I need to do to get to the Higgs boson? It, exactly. And and the very kind of, I'd say pinnacle, peak physics for me, if you will, um, was, yeah, fourth year undergrad, going through the mathematics of the Higgs boson. Um, and actually the, the quantum field theory of like, oh, this is how this 120... 5GV, we didn't know the mass at the time, but this is how this massive particle pops out of the maths. Um, you know, reaching that point, I was like, yep, okay, fine, I'm done now. Let's go and find it, and then um, and, and we'll go from there. I said, having done all that, the mathematics and the physics behind magnetic resonance imaging, I still think it is indistinguishable from magic, basically. Um, it is a... Because have you had an MRI scan? I have had numerous MRI scans. And I'm, I'm sure many listeners will have as well. So basically, in a nutshell, um, you go into the scanner, which has this very high uniform magnetic field. So the scanner, for people who haven't seen it, this is this sort of donut arranged kind of vertically and you slide through the hole in the middle. And the donut is this massive coil of uh, wire that is super cooled down to superconducting uh, temperatures so you can get that high magnetic field. And long story short, it lines up all the magnetic momenta in every hydrogen atom in your body. Wow. To point along that direction. And then you essentially tap it, or tap all of those, with a pulse of radio frequency radiation. So it's the same um, frequency, literally, as uh, FM radio. There are two magnetic field strengths clinically used, 1.5 Tesla and 3 Tesla. And the way I remember it, is the radio four frequency, sort of 92 megahertz, is halfway between the two. So that's the thing that's stuck in my head. But anyway, you apply this pulse of RF radiation and that knocks all of these spins off that equilibrium position. So they were all lined up in this particular direction from the magnet and then you you kick them a bit. Uh, And that changes the frequency of each of these little spinning things in your body. So all these things are going round and round, but they're now not going round and round at the same speed. Exactly. And then what you do is... I love how excited you are. Well, this is the thing. The signal that you then listen to, sort of the radio frequency broadcast that you get out, you apply a Fourier transform to that and you get your image out. Just like that? Literally just like that. 
Um, it is phenomenal. And the, the thing is, um, so Sir Peter Mansfield uh, was one of the Nobel Prize winners um, for MRI scanning. Um, he's one of the people to make those conceptual leaps to not only go through the physics of nuclear magnetic resonance to then applying that to a sample with the RF pulses, blah, 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 but then to go, we can make an image. Just the, the conceptual leaps that you had to make, I think, I mean, it's why the Nobel Prize is fully justified for that. Because if you think about the impact that MRI has had on clinical treatment, diagnosis... Yeah, the ability for clinicians to look inside a person's body in that way. Exactly. Without having to cut them open, without having to, um, yeah, use ionising radiation. Um, yeah, is, is phenomenal. And still, like I say, it's it, to, uh, yeah, paraphrase Arthur C. Clarke, you know, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And, and I think the, the Fourier transform, the Fourier analysis is one of those things where it wasn't created for this reason. This was a piece of mathematics that arose for completely different reasons. It has very pure, very fundamental questions to be asked about it, but it also has these extraordinary applications that, that literally change lives, like, for example, in MRI scanning. And yeah, I'm, I'm, the next time I have an MRI scan, I don't know when that is, but I bet there will be one. I'm going to lie there in the scanner and sort of picture all these little things whizzing round at the frequency of Radio 4 or whatever before they are kicked to their different frequencies. That's the other thing as well. So if, well, you'll notice if you've been in an MRI scan, and I have been in for, for research purposes, is, is the noise. And the reason for that is the, um, when you're creating these changes in the magnetic uh, gradients, um, that involves applying voltages to these uh, coils, and it's actually very noisy. And depending on the magnetic field strength of the particular scanner that you're using, you have to apply these pulses in, in different sort of frequencies, which you can actually program into audible um, musical notes if you've got the right sort of frequencies. But there's a clip on YouTube of someone who has programmed an MRI scanner to play the Bach cello suites. <laughs> But there's there's a serious point to that in that um, there's a certain type of scan where it doesn't actually matter what order you apply the gradients in. Um, you can sort of it's called pseudo, well it's called MRI fingerprinting, basically, and it's a particular type of scan. But um, great potential to um, do some very clever things in, in terms of identifying different tissues uh, and that sort of thing. But one thing they realised was that you can um, essentially play out these gradient sequences in any order, um, including as music. Um, so, you know, some people find MRI scans very you know, claustrophobic or intimidating. You have to be there for quite a while. Um, so there was genuinely a thought of, oh, well, if we can make this scan sound actually play out some music um, or something that's at least more, more comforting, that would like, be better for patients. That's the thing that always, yeah, gets me about the MRI scans is just, um, yeah, the sounds that they make. And, and when you hear that sort of, yeah, um, personally anyway, that, that sort of sound, like, oh, you know it's working, you know you're getting a sound, but then ultimately that's going to be converted into uh, an image. The power of mass and physics, and, and more impressive than, than the Higgs mechanism for me, I think. I'm finding this fascinating and having spent all this time in medical scanners and having radiotherapy and so on to be able to explore some of the maths and physics of that is great. Um, we're going to have to wrap up in a moment, I think. But I just want to ask, what advice would you give to somebody starting their studies now who might be interested in using maths or physics to diagnose and treat cancer? So in terms of advice for someone yeah, looking to apply mathematics and physics to uh, any area of, of sort of medical um practice or in the clinic or helping patients or what have you um yeah the first thing to establish is yeah what's your motivation i mean so i think it's fair to say maths can be quite not hard but it requires you know, you've got to work at it um there's there's nothing you know that's not worth doing that doesn't require uh a lot of work and sometimes that work can be quite dry and repetitive um and sometimes it can be great, you know, when you do finally make that equation work, it's like, yes, but there's those moments of frustration where it's like, Ugh. but behind all that, you've got to have, well, yeah, why am I doing this? What's the ultimate goal? So if, as we said, you know, for me at the start, it was like Higgs mechanism, particle physics, all that sort of thing. But lots of the students I uh, talked to and worked in out either know someone who um, you know, has been affected by cancer or some other sort of medical thing. And that can be a very strong sort of um, motivation 
as well and, and, and rightly so so if you if you're thinking uh, why isn't this equation working it's just like you know one day someone's life might depend on this um so you know keep going in that sort of sense um but again an, a, an important thing to consider is you know where on that spectrum of impact am i going to be best sort of placed you know where am i going to not even have the most impact because i think it all you need every bit of the process from the very yeah you've got the the, the mass at the very start to the sort of physics and the lab based things where you're you're doing things on you know literally on cells on a petri dish um where you can do lots of experiments and again they can be quite frustrating because your incubator will get contaminated or whatever you have to read all of that and um you know there's frustration and difficulty at every, every sort of stage but but this is the thing when you do get that moment of the kind of the breakthrough of no one has seen this before that's the that's the bit in research it's like for just that brief moment you're the only person in the world who has seen that result and then you get to tell other people about it and again in, in medical physics you could say well this might have this impact on on that sort of thing that's the the thing to sort of keep bearing in mind i think so have that have that motivation remind yourself why it is that you're working at this exactly and if you can try it try it before you buy it. Um, so badger doctors and clinical people for like shadowing uh, experiences. Um, Oxford run the Unique program, I think, um, which uh, gives um, students in secondary schools and further education the chance to you know come to Oxford and actually experience you know working in the lab what research is like. Yeah, and then there's also Unique Plus for for undergraduates. Yeah, but get get experience and actually and actually try it. And and you may well find um, actually I don't like working with patience uh, I just don't have um, the patience or the people skills or actually this is what is getting me out of bed every morning like actually seeing you know interacting with, with people and seeing the impact one of the things that I love about this this podcast series is that it's a privilege for me to be able to talk to the people who are using their their maths and stats and, and physics um, expertise in so many different ways and I guess that's really that kind of playing to people's individual strengths and their interests and what gets them out of bed in the morning and it's been fantastic to hear you talking so um, clearly about what gets you out of bed in the morning. That just kind of comes across in everything you say. Um, thank you so much, Tom, for our, our fascinating discussion today, but also for your, your research and your teaching, um, which are helping to improve diagnosis and treatment for cancer patients now and on into the future. So thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Maths Plus Cancer. I hope that you found the conversation as interesting as I did. There are more episodes of Maths Plus Cancer as well as features about Oxford's research into cancer at ox.ac.uk forward slash cancer. If you're enjoying exploring how maths and stats help us to understand and tackle cancer, I'd love it if you'd tell your friends about the podcast. And please do join in on social media using the hashtag maths plus cancer. That's plus the word, not the mathematical symbol.